John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. I'll give you a few seconds to turn to uh, your scripture. And I'll be reading from the ESV. And so please turn to your scriptures and we'll read John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. This is God's word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Oh, sorry about that. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We're wrapping up our teaching series this morning in the book of John, and there are two main things that I hope that you've taken away from the book this summer. First, I hope that you've seen how personally Jesus interacts with each of us how he does so in unique ways to meet the unique needs that each of us has so that we can see him a little bit more clearly. I hope that you've seen that. And then I hope, secondly, that you realize how you now need to reach out to others in the same kind of way, that you can't approach people with a one-size-fits-all kind of manner, but that you need to be just as flexible as Jesus is, just as tuned into people's unique needs as he is, as you meet those needs and as you seek to introduce people to him. Now that second thing that I'm hoping that you picked up this summer, reaching out to others like Jesus has reached out to you, giving people a, a taste and a touch of him, that's a really important part of what it means to be a Christian. It's how we actively practice loving your neighbor as yourself. It's really important and it's really easy to talk yourself out of. It's especially easy in our culture because we live in a society that values experts, values expertise. Each field, each trade, each profession has its own expert knowledge, its own expert practices that can only be used correctly by whom? By people who have invested their time, their energy uh, to acquire the requisite skills and knowledge. And if you're not an expert in a certain area, then you've been cautioned over and over and over again that you're not qualified to do the things that experts are qualified to do. Our modern social setting is one that values experts 
does not value someone who is a jack of all trades, someone who's a generalist. And because that's our social location, it's very easy to bring that mindset into the church. And so you can hear something like you just did that you need to be invested like God is in meeting other people's needs. You can hear that, but then internally you translate that a little bit differently by saying, I'm not an expert in this area. I don't know how to approach people like God does. I'm certainly not an expert at introducing people to Jesus. I'm not qualified. I better leave that to someone else. Someone else, pastors, elders, the diaconate, CG leaders, children's youth teachers, someone else who thinks about all those people out there and thinks about what they need and thinks about how Jesus intersects with their needs. Someone else who knows what they're doing. Someone else needs to tell my friends and neighbors about Jesus. I'll be happy to pray for them, happy to pray that God will provide that person, but I don't know how to do that. I don't know what I'm doing. My friends might ask me something that I can't answer. I might turn them off instead of helping them. Or we think, someone else needs to disciple my kids. I wasn't discipled by my parents. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't want to make a mistake with my kids. Or someone else needs to lead the CG. I don't know what I'm doing. I might say the wrong things. I might lead everybody in the wrong direction. It's really easy to think like that. And so what happens? Opportunities crop up in front of us, and we just let them go. We know that we could reach out to our neighbor, but we don't know really how to start a conversation about God that doesn't sound a little strange, and so we never reference our faith with them. Or we could pray with our child about what's upsetting them today, but we're afraid that, you know, if Jesus doesn't answer them, I'll have taken my one God card that I have, I'll played that card, and now I don't know what to do next. Or we could ask our roommate, how did what Jesus do on the cross, how does that intersect with the thing that's upsetting you from work today? We could ask that, but frankly, we don't know the answer, and we don't want to ask a question that we don't know the answer to. That might make us look foolish. We feel inadequate inexpert. And so we don't take advantage of the opportunities that we have to engage people like Jesus would engage them. Or worse, we're very aware that we haven't always lived our faith well, that there are times when our neighbors, when our kids, when our roommates have seen us, and our life in those moments didn't look very Christian because, frankly, in those moments it wasn't very Christian. They saw that time, they saw those times, and now we're afraid that they'll think if we say anything about the Lord that, that we're just being hypocritical. And so we can see their need. We know that Jesus has called us to invest ourselves in them like he's invested himself in us. We know all that, and yet in that moment, what do we do? We punt. We keep our heads down. We make sure we don't attract a lot of attention. We live a very small, quiet life in the suburbs. We do that while people in need stay in need while we withhold real help from them that they need, while we hope that God will send someone else to them. Now, how do you face that reality and not stay stuck there? And equally, equally important, how do you face that reality and not respond out of guilt? Because you know that'd be really easy to do right now, right? You, you, you can get a sense that you know, may, what, maybe what I just said could shame you into trying to do something. And if you feel shamed in this moment, please don't act out of shame because that's not how the gospel works. And it would be just as bad literally as doing nothing. It's just as bad because people know when you're genuinely interested in them or when you're just simply engaging them because you feel like you have to or you feel like you should or you feel like you're, you, you were a bad person because you didn't try earlier. And when that happens, when you act out of shame, 
other people don't feel loved. They feel like a project. They feel like they don't really matter to you, and if they don't matter to you, then what? Then they probably don't matter very much to the God that you're saying that you represent either. So how do we get to a place where all of us, individually, all of us as a church, where how do we get to a place where we are willingly, gladly, giving the best that we have to others? How do we get a, to a place where we're moved to engage others like God himself has engaged us? This passage in John chapter 21 shows us three things that will help us get there. First, it shows you what is it that qualifies you to serve. What qualifies you to give of yourself, to engage other people? What is it that qualifies you? Second, it shows you characteristics that are true of every single person who serves. And third, it lays out the conditions under which you serve, under which you engage other people. So it shows you the qualifications, the characteristics, and the conditions that you need if you're going to engage other people well. So first, the qualifications that you need. Jesus tells Peter three different times to serve his people. Three times he says essentially to him the same thing. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Take care of my people. He's adopting some of that language that he picked up in John chapter 10 when he talks about himself as the good shepherd. And he says, essentially, Peter, I'm now giving you the responsibility to also shepherd, to also take care of my flock. I'm giving you back the calling that I gave you at first when I called you to be my disciple. It's not just your calling alone. It's the same calling that all the disciples have. And it's the same calling that all of you are to teach all of the rest of the people who become my sheep. So, Peter, do that. Take care of my sheep. Feed them. Tend them. Look out for them. Watch out for them. Know their needs. Provide for their needs. That's Jesus' charge to Peter. But what is it that qualifies Peter to receive that kind of charge, to hear that kind of charge? What qualifies him to be that kind of shepherd, the kind of a person who will now care for God's people? What qualifies him to do that? Well, the qualification is in the answer that he gives to Jesus' question. Jesus keeps asking this question over and over and over, Peter, do you love me? Peter, where's your heart? Peter, what grabs your heart most? Peter, is it me? Do I have your heart or does something else? Peter, do you love me? And that's actually the goal of our faith. It's that we would love Jesus. It's the whole reason that Jesus went to the cross. It's the whole point of the resurrection. It's the reason behind all of the reasons for why we think what we think, for why we do what we do. It's all about this one deeply personal question that Jesus asks, do you love me? Now, Let's notice for a moment what Jesus does not ask. He doesn't ask, Peter, do you love religion? Do you love the feelings that you get, the religious feelings that you get from religion? Do you love the structure? Do you love the rituals that religion adds to your life? Do you love the social organization of religious communities and religious institutions? He doesn't ask that. He doesn't ask Peter, do you love religion? He also doesn't ask Peter, do you love principles? Do you love good guidelines for ethical uh, living? Do you love what I teach you about how to be a good person, how to uh, live well? Do, do you love me teaching you? This past week, Newsweek reported uh, on a study that had found 52% of Americans believe that Jesus was a great teacher and nothing more. 
52% of Americans, over half, slightly over half, according to this study, believe that Jesus was simply a good teacher. Perhaps a little more alarming is that a one-third of evangelicals agree with that. They agree that Jesus wasn't God. People who describe themselves as evangelicals, they think Jesus was just a great teacher. Now think about that. Nearly over, over, just slightly over half of the U.S. believes that Jesus, when he's talking to Peter, would say, Peter, do you love principles and ethics, the things that I teach? Because that's all I have to offer. I'm simply a teacher. Jesus didn't ask that. He didn't ask, do you love religion? He doesn't ask, do you love ethical teaching? And he doesn't ask Peter, do you love spirituality? Do you love faith? Do you love having faith? Do you love having faith regardless of what that faith is in? Do you love impersonal, abstract, generic faith? Do you love thinking of yourself as a spiritual person? He doesn't ask any of those things. He asks a very pointed, very personal question. Peter, do you love me? And not, by the way, Peter, a me that you made up, but do you love me? Do you love the one who asks you these very uncomfortable questions while we're standing on the shore of the sea? Do you love me who asks you uncomfortable questions in front of your friends because there's something, some unfinished business between us still? Do you love me? Do you love the one who interrupts your plans for your life by commanding you to take care of my people? The one who changes your career from fisherman to shepherd so that you go from caring about fish to the infinitely harder work of caring about people. Do you love me? Do you love the one who tells you you're going to die a really horrible death? Do you love me when I tell you that what I'm planning for other people is none of your business? That I'm not accountable to you for my decisions about John or anyone else, but that you need to follow me anyway. Do you love me? Do you love a God who makes demands on you and then who holds you accountable to those demands do you love me? That's the question. Think about it long enough, you realize there is no more important question that anyone will ever ask you. It's the same question for you. Do you love Jesus? Not the Jesus that you made up. Do you love this Jesus that really exists and that walked this earth? Do you love him more than you love anything else? And each time Jesus asks Peter, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You've got my heart, Lord, like nothing else does. There is nothing that I want as much as I want you. There is nothing that I want to rule my thoughts and my desires like you do. You're it. You're the center of all that there is to me. And immediately after Peter says that, each time Jesus responds, then take care of my people. If you love me, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. If I am what is most important to you, then even if you're unskilled, inexpert, even if you fail, you're qualified. You have what it takes to care for my people. That's it. That's the one qualification. Do you love the shepherd? If, you, if so, then you've got what it takes to love his sheep. And if you have what it takes, if you're qualified to care for them, then you need to. That's point one. What are the qualifications? Actually, let's amend it. What is the qualification in order for you to serve other people, to serve Jesus' people? It's that you love him. Point two, what are the characteristics of those serve who care for God's people? Jesus is entrusting his people, these people who cost him so much. He's entrusting them into Peter's hands. And if you didn't know better, you would figure Peter's got to be a really stand-up kind of guy. 
someone who has demonstrated that he can handle responsibility for other people, someone who will not collapse under pressure. At least you'd be tempted to think that because in our world, if you want to be promoted, you have to have a good track record. You have to demonstrate not only that you are merely competent, but that you excel at what you do. Or at least you have to be able to explain why any blemishes on your record, either what, they weren't really your fault, or you were able to turn them into an advantage. You have to do that because in our world, failure takes you out of the running. It sidelines you. No one gives you more responsibility if you've demonstrated that you can't handle it. And that's not the way the kingdom of God works. Instead, Jesus promotes people who do fail. He promotes people who don't simply mishandle an opportunity. They don't simply drop a ball. He promotes people who make bad decisions, who give in to pressure when they know they shouldn't. People who are not simply his sheep, but to extend his metaphor, people who are wayward sheep. People who under their own power wander away from the shepherd. People who go, to, go astray. He doesn't promote them because they go astray. He promotes them despite them going astray. Those are the people that Jesus chooses to care for his people. Jesus calls wayward sheep to be the shepherds of his people. Do you feel those times where you feel like you're too inadequate, way too messed up to serve other people? Guess what? That's all of us. It's something you have to get used to. No one serves in God's kingdom because they have an unblemished record of loving Jesus and loving his people. We serve because Jesus first served us, and after serving us, he chooses us to serve others. So the only people that you will ever meet who are serving in Christ's kingdom are those who have personal experience, personal firsthand experience with having strayed themselves. They've strayed. That's one characteristic of all of those who serve. They've strayed, and secondly, not only have they strayed, but they've been restored. Jesus asks his question three times. It's pretty clear that he asks one time for each time that Peter denied him on the night when Jesus was arrested. And each time that Jesus asks, do you love me? Peter responds with, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Or at least he does the first two times. He's grieved the third time Jesus asks. And you can imagine why. He's already answered Jesus twice. He's not enjoying this conversation. He's grieved over it. He's not enjoying the memory of that night back in the high priest's courtyard. That night when other people kept asking him if he's one of Jesus' disciples and he kept denying that he even knew who Jesus was. He's not enjoying this conversation. And yet Jesus will not let up. He asks the third time and Peter in frustration says, verse 17, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Peter's right. Jesus does know everything. He knows right now what's going on in Peter's heart. He knows right now, just like he knew several nights ago, what was in Peter's heart. He knew what Peter would do. He told Peter before he was arrested that Peter would deny him, that something else would be more important to Peter in that moment than Jesus was. Jesus knew what was going on in Peter's heart then, and he knows what's going on in it now. So why ask? Why put this guy through this misery? Why ask a question when he already knows the answer? Clearly, it's not because he needs the information. He already has the information. Peter knows that, which means that he's not asking for his own sake. If that's the case, 
follow the logic a little bit further, if he's not asking for his sake, whose sake is he asking for? It has to be Peter's. In other words, he's not being mean to Peter. This is actually love. Why else would you initiate an awkward conversation that you did not need for your own benefit? If it's not for your sake, if it's not for Jesus' sake, it has to be for the other person's. It's for Peter's. Which means that Jesus is driven out of love here, out of love that wants something better for Peter, that wants him and Peter to be on the same page. It's a conversation of restoration. Yes, Peter has strayed, but Jesus is not content with that strain being the last word on Peter. He doesn't want Peter's last word on their relationship to be one of denial. And so he presses the issue until the last word coming out of Peter's mouth is love. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The last word is love. The last word is affection, commitment, loyalty, faithfulness. Jesus doesn't need the information. Peter needs the experience of answering the question. He needs the opportunity to reverse the denials that he had proclaimed earlier. And he's not doing that so that he can gain Jesus's forgiveness. He already has that. That's what Jesus won on the cross. He's doing that because he has to experience that restoration. Jesus can die for those sins at one point in time. Peter has to experience that in time and space, just like you and I do. And when he's restored to Jesus, he's simultaneously restored to Jesus's people, restored to the shepherd and restored to the sheep. It's a package deal. Do you love Jesus? Then take care of his people. You love Jesus. He sends you then to love those who love him. And he sends you regardless of how little you know and ultimately of how much messed up you are. Those things don't matter because he will shepherd you out of them so that you shepherd his people like he shepherds you. I was asked one time what I would say to someone who had been struggling as a parent, who had been failing over and over and over and over with their kids, and it was very ironic because I was asked that in the middle of a really rough week for me at home, rougher week for my kids. It was a week where every interaction between me and them turned into this half-hour argument, and, and I didn't handle it well. I found myself getting more harsh and, and critical as the week went on. And so when this person asked me this, I said, honestly, you're talking about me right now. I am that parent who is struggling. So what hope do I have? It's that I am not just a parent in my family, but that I'm a child in a better family. I'm a child in a better family with a better father, my father in heaven. And my father is absolutely committed to being involved in my life. He's absolutely committed to parenting me so that I can be the parent that he always meant me to be. So that I can be the parent that I actually want to be. Do you love Jesus? Then you will love his people because Jesus will restore you each time that you fail. He'll restore you back to himself and he'll restore you back to what he's given you to do. That's points one and two, the qualification and characteristics of people who serve in God's kingdom. Point three, Let's think about the conditions under which you serve. Immediately after Jesus restores Peter, he then tells him, verses 18 to 19, the kind of death that he's going to die in order to glorify God, and it's absolutely gruesome. Jesus tells him, verse 18, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
It's a thinly veiled picture of crucifixion. It's a picture that everyone there would have recognized. It's a picture of Peter stretching out his hands, of having the crossbar of the cross tied to them, dressed with the crossbar, and then carrying that crossbar to the place where they would crucify him. What is Jesus saying to Peter? He's saying, since you love me, take care of my people. But here's the condition under which you're going to do that. You will carry that out, that command out in the shadow of your own cross. You will live out what I tell you to do in the face of your coming death. Obeying me, feeding my lambs, tending my sheep, that's going to set you in opposition to the larger world and at some point they will literally kill you because of what you do for my people out of love for me. Can you imagine how heavy that was to hear that that morning? It gets worse when you do the math because that prophecy of Jesus did not come true for another 30 years. Peter walked for three decades on this earth, pouring himself out for the sake of God's people, knowing that there was a death waiting for him. That at some point in time, somewhere, not knowing exactly when or where, the decisions that he was making to care for God's people were going to kill him. He knew that that person who was standing in front of him, that person who he was supposed to care for, he knew that deciding to care for them in such a way that helped them see Jesus was going to take him a little bit further down that road to his death. Jesus wants Peter to know that it's coming, that there's no escaping it. He wants Peter to know that he cannot love Jesus and serve his people and insulate himself from harm at the same time. Peter tried to do that in the courtyard of the high priest when he denied Christ. It didn't work out very well. Those two desires, loving Jesus and loving his people and insulating yourself from harm, those two desires are antithetical. They are set in different directions. They clash. They're in conflict. Following Jesus means sacrificing yourself for the sake of his people. Not once, not twice, not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. It means a life of sacrifice. And you'll only do that secondly, sacrifice yourself, if first you love Jesus more than you love anything else. Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood this. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then his very famous line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus calls Peter to embrace the cross at the start of his ministry. He calls him to expect to give up everything that he has before he finishes what Jesus gives him to do. You should not expect Jesus' call to you to cost you any less. He may call you to follow him by sacrificing more for one of your children than you ever thought you'd have to. Their life struggles may cost you money, it may cost you time, you may have to modify your career. 
You might sacrifice your reputation as they embarrass you over and over and over again as they struggle and as you care for them in their struggles. You'll have to stretch out your arms and you'll have to die to what you want in order to give them what they need. Or Jesus may call you to sacrifice your lifestyle, to give a significant amount of your resources, either the money that you already have made or time that you would have used to make more money. He will call you to give up your lifestyle in order to meet a need that he calls you to meet, a need that grips your heart as you care for his sheep, as you care for those who might become his sheep. Or he may call you to take a risk, to make choices that are going to put you in places of real physical danger, either here or overseas, places where there is the potential of getting hurt, of catching a disease, of catching a virus, of being threatened, injured, for the sake of seeing the gospel advance in someone else's life. Or he may call you to take a stand and speak up for God's people in ways that will help them and will benefit them, but that will not be popular. He may call you to speak up in ways that get you canceled in today's climate. When Christ calls a man, when he calls a woman, a teenager, a child, he bids them come and die. Take Jesus up on his command to follow him and you'll only do so in the shadow of the cross. And when you see another Christian and they're not going through everything that you're having to go through and you ask, verse 21, Lord, what about them? Expect Jesus to come back to you, verse 22, and say, if it is my will that they remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Expect him to say, that's none of your business. If I want them to have a completely different life, that's up to me. You follow me on the road that I lay out for you. Now, why would you do that? Why love this kind of God? Why embrace a life that will certainly interrupt your carefully made plans? Why, especially if it, it, if it will cost you? Why, if it will definitely require you to sacrifice more than you want to? Why, if it might even kill you? Why would you do any of that? Why would you do all of that since it's a package deal, since it all comes together? Why would you give yourself to this Jesus and to his people and to a life of sacrificing for them? It's because this life that you're being called to has nothing to do with religion. This life that you're being called to has nothing to do with ethical principles and guidelines. This life has nothing to do with a vague, indistinct spirituality. This life has everything to do with Jesus. It has to do with this Jesus who doesn't call you to sacrifice more for other people than he was willing to sacrifice for you. It has to do with this Jesus who spread his arms wide and was dressed by the cross, which he then carried to the place where it killed him. A cross that he knew was coming his entire 30-some year life. A cross he embraced, not because he needed it, but because you did. A cross that let him pay for your sin debt. That let him pay for the times when you refused to sacrifice yourself for others. That let him pay for the times when you refused to care for his people. That let him pay for the times when you rejected his command to love others. For the times when you have loved something else more than you loved him. He embraced the cross so that when he confronts you for not loving him and not loving others, 
It's so that he can forgive you. It's so that he can restore you to himself and to his community. And so he calls you to follow him, not to punish you, not to earn his forgiveness. He calls you to follow him so that what? So that you can be with him, so that you can be where he is, so that you can be with his people. He calls you to follow him because he's forgiven you, because he wants you to be with him where he is. So when he says, follow me, he says, follow me on this road of sacrificial love. That's how I lived my life, loving my people until it killed me. Why? So that you could now be with me. This was the only way you could be with me. It's the only way that you could be part of my people. If I had chosen any other road to walk down, it would not have been good for you. So listen. If Jesus' way was the only way for you to recover from your failures, the only way for you to be restored to him and to his people, if that's the only way, then any other road that he chose, any other way of living, would have ended up badly for you. It's pure grace then when he says to you, join me on the road that I'm on. Be with me. If you love me, if you want to be with me, you have to walk the same road that I'm on. You can't pick a different road and end up with me because I'm not on any other road. If you love me, follow me. Be with me. Sacrificially feed my sheep all your life in the shadow of your own cross. That's the only way you can keep in step with me. Not to earn your salvation, not to earn my forgiveness, but so you can be where I am. Any other road, friends, any other way of living means you're out of step with Jesus. And frankly, when you look at Jesus, why would you want that? Why would you want to be where Jesus is not? Why would you want to do what he isn't? Why would you want to miss out on this great a God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth. Thank you for walking the road in front of us. Thank you, Lord, that any suffering that you call us into is a small, small, small fraction of what you've already endured for us, for our sake. Lord God, we trust you. You will not lead us into anything that is unnecessary in the same way that you did not walk an unnecessary road. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you. We embrace you. We say, Lord, take the, the unlove inside of us, the, the, the fear that cowers away from your call. Take that away, Lord. Restore us to yourself. Restore us to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.